Now, I don't usually break up speeches like this, but I thought well, that actually does fit so well with some points made by Richard Wolfe about what went on since the mid-1970s, because capitalism required it to go on. So, before we continue with the remainder of Chris Hedge's speech, this is a speech by Richard Wolfe at the Left Forum in 2018. I want to start by reminding you of a section of the Communist Manifesto that Karl Marx wrote 150 or whatever it is now, 170 years ago. He was stung at that time when he was writing that by an attack made against radicals, leftists, socialists. Not that many people used that language quite then. In fact, he was a bit daring even by using the word communist in the name of the manifesto he wrote. But people were attacking leftists those days on the grounds that, quote, unquote, they are against the family. That if communists were in power, they would destroy the family. They are anti-family. I tell you that for two reasons. One, the sad reality that you also live in a society right now where the right wing likes to attack people like us as lacking family values. So something hasn't changed. And Marx's answer hasn't changed either. Marx's answer was, you accuse us of destroying the family? You must be kidding. We are not in the position to destroy their family. You've already done that. And what he meant was, you have put the proletarians of the world into situations where any family-type relationship is unobtainable and unsustainable. You're the perpetrator of the destruction of the family, not us. Keep in mind, though, that he had to face the fact that the people who had destroyed the family by creating economic conditions that made family unsurvivable had somehow blamed somebody else, namely them. And I'm now going to tell you a story of how pretty much the same thing is being done here and has been for 30 years, maybe 40, maybe 50. Okay. It starts here in the 1970s. This is a stylized story, so I'm not going to get all the details, but the basic story. For most of the years from 45 to 75, those 30 years after World War II, the United States economy was in a very peculiar situation. All the other capitalist countries of the world were destroyed. They couldn't compete. They couldn't produce anything. They had had a horrific war on their country, whereas we had none, excepting Pearl Harbor, and that didn't do the damage that was suffered in France or Germany or Russia or any of the other countries that we would compete with. And so it was possible for the United States to produce for everybody. 
and therefore to pay rising wages because they could charge whatever they needed to recoup the rising wage. For those of you who don't know, the Marshall Plan that helped Europe had a little detail in it. We're going to give you all this money, you in Europe and elsewhere, on condition that you buy American products at whatever price the American producer chose to charge. We therefore ripped the Europeans off, made a huge amount of money, and were able to tell our workers, you don't need to be left-wingers or radicals, because in the 30s they were, because we'll raise your wages without class struggle, because we don't have to pay. We have those Europeans flat on their back. The important thing is that for those 30 years, American workers could be given what they had, not quite to the same degree, but enjoyed even earlier, what came to be called a family wage. Basically enough money to allow the woman, the wife, the mother, to stay at home, raise the children. Of course, poorer people couldn't have that luxury. Non-white people particularly could not have that luxury. But a lot of white people did. And then this lovely 30-year period, 1945 to 75, came to an end. The Europeans had the bad taste to rebuild their economies. The Japanese, equally, the bad taste to rebuild their economies. And of course, being capitalist economies, they knew who they had to beat. They had to beat the United States. They had to produce what the United States produced, either better quality or a cheaper price, or best of all, both. Otherwise, they'd have no chance in a world dominated by the United States, militarily, politically, culturally. If you're going to succeed as a capitalist in Japan or Germany or anywhere else, you better outdo the Americans. So they set themselves to do that, and by and large, they did. So by the 1970s, Americans were trading in their Fords and Chevys and buying VWs and eventually Hondas and you know the rest. The United States could no longer get away with the game for those first 30 years. It had to change the game. And the 1970s was the time when the game got changed. And the basic change of the game was no more wage increases, we're going to compete with these foreigners, and we're going to do it by taking it out on you, the American working class. That's always the first choice. But not just that. We're going to do a multi-pronged effort. We're going to start using technology in a way we hadn't before, replacing expensive workers, which is a double benefit because not only do you save money on the worker you replace with a machine, but you make that worker compete with the remaining workers driving down the wages. It's a nice twofer. And so they did that. And finally, when neither of those strategies were available, they went to more steps. One, they moved the jobs out of the country to where the wages were cheap. And they moved the cheap workers from whatever country they were in here to have them available here and to press down the wages, all of which worked out real well. In short, the problems of capitalist enterprises starting in the 1970s were solved by ripping off Two other institutions in our society, 
The first one was the state. I won't go through it all with you, but you do know 1970s is when we begin to have what came to be called the tax revolt of the American people. The reality was slashing the government. Mr. Reagan is the moment when you go from government as the solution to the problems of a depressed economy that comes out of the depression into government is the problem, not the solution. And the solution is to get rid of the government, cut the taxes, cut government spending, the mantra of the Republican Party and much of the Democratic Party ever since. So the capitalists are going to solve their problem by attacking the state so they don't have to pay taxes. The culmination of that, the tax cut of last December 2017, which caps 40 years of reducing the burden on corporations by reducing it some more. Attack the government. Immobilize the government. But I said there were two institutions. What was the other institution that the capitalists attacked in order to solve their problems? And the answer is the family. When the wages go down because you have technological change, export of job, bringing in immigrants, when you do that, it's no longer possible, particularly for the white male, keep that in your head, to have a salary that can sustain the white female at home, being the homemaker, the mother, uh, the emotional center of the family, etc., etc. She can't do that because you can't sustain your standard of living. The thing you've promised to one another when you got married, the thing you've promised to your children, you can't afford it anymore. For those of you who don't know, the real wage that had been rising for a 100 years in this country before the 1970s stopped rising. It hasn't risen since. The real wage didn't go up anymore. Meanwhile, the name of what an American dream to a family meant kept rising. No way out. So what did the American families do when they couldn't do this anymore? When the capitalist system said, we're going to save the profits of business and we're going to stick it to the government and we're going to stick it to the family. Families did two things in response to this attack. They didn't want to give up the American dream. They didn't want to. They had been told that that was their birthright. That was the American experience. That was the uniqueness, the exceptionalism of America, all of that. So American families tried to hold on in this impossible situation. So they did two things. Number one, they did more hours of work. More people in the family took jobs, and if they had a job, they did a second job or more hours. And the second thing they did because it wasn't enough to take more hours. Well, if your wages are going nowhere, but you have to spend more money, then that woman has to go out to work. No more homemaker, mother, uh-uh-uh-uh, out. If you want to call that liberation, fine. That's like when you don't eat meat anymore, and you, you switch from hamburger to hamburger helper, and you tell yourself it's because of your diet. <laughs> Doesn't mean it isn't true, but it means you're using a cover for something whose 
other reality you don't quite want to see. So Americans not only did more work to hold on to the American dream, but they sent the wife out. And when that wasn't enough, and it wasn't basically because when the wife goes out to work, the family has new expenses it didn't have before. She has to have a whole other set of clothes for the job. And they maybe have to get another car in a country whose public transportation is as as ours is, etc., etc. So the families did that last thing. They borrowed money like no working class has ever borrowed money before. We became pioneers, only not this time in a covered wagon going across the prairie. We became pioneers in a level of socialized consumer debt that is still the model for the world. Homeowner debt, car debt, credit card debt, and in the last 20 years, an added one, student debt. Fantastic. Load the population up. The only way you can now get that American dream is if you're working your ass off all the time and you're anxiety ridden because of debts you know you can't pay. Of course you destroy the family. Are you kidding? Either one of those would have been enough. The combination, a knockout blow. Nobody's home enough. Everybody's catching a bit of yogurt on the way home as a substitute for a family dinner. Right? Should be familiar to all of you. The family as an institution is destroyed over the last 40 years. Think about the difference between television programs, for those of you who've had a chance to look at them, that are 40 years old. The lovely husband going out to work with the briefcase and the tie. And the lovely wife at home who's waiting for his return as she grooms Spot the dog and plays with Dick and Jane on the lawn waiting for Daddy to come home. Isn't this charming? And the little foibles as they lead their wonderfully wonder-bred lives. Now fast forward 30 years, and what do you get? The dysfunctional family. The wife who makes jokes about the sexual inadequacy of the husband who repays her in kind. The children who roll their eyes, clearly understanding that their families, their parents couldn't possibly have done what brought them into the world by the very nature of their awkward incompatibility. It's a cultural transformation, but it mirrors the economic reality. The family is done. Many of you are the products of these families. I don't want to upset you, but you already know that. <laughs> as, as Harriet Fraud will tell you, the signs of it in people's decisions about whether or not to get married, whether or not to have children, it's already there. You already know it. You already know it. So... Let me conclude by telling you what the consequences are of the destruction of the family because it was needed by a capitalist system at a certain time to solve its problems that way. First, there was a genius appropriation of this process by the Republican Party in the United States and the complete missing of what's going on by the Democratic Party which, if you follow politics, shouldn't surprise you, this is a repetition over and over again. 
right up to the present. Here's what the Republican Party understood. Having helped the capitalists more than the Democrats to carry through all of these steps, cutting the taxes of the governments, making the government smaller, weakening the unions, all opening the globe for American expansion, all the things Republicans do more than Democrats, and having thereby smashed the family, the Republican Party realized that the way to save this situation for themselves was to position themselves as the champion of family values. That's genius. You destroy an institution, throw people into the horror of living out the destruction of what they had been led to expect, and then you say, vote for us, we'll bring it all back. The Democrats, moving with real skill into the level of complete stupidity, didn't see any of it. Didn't understand what, what's his uh, family values, hypocritically, missed the whole thing. They thereby got the mass of people suffering what it means to have no family in a very rapacious capitalist universe where they have to work longer hours and you're tired and the family might have been that haven in a heartless world that Marx once referred to it as. Uh-uh, couldn't function that way. Well, people were distraught. And the Republicans came along and said, yes, the family is under attack and it's, it's, what? They're not going to say it's the capitalists. That's them. So who is it? It's homosexuals. It's homosexuals. And anybody else they could think of other than the capitalist system. Anybody. Democrats, in fact, could be pointed out. So you turn the destruction of the family not into an, not only an asset for Republicans, but a a loss for the Democrats. Without that move, the Republicans would not have been able to have power in the last 35 years of American society. No Trump, no Bush, none of it. That or Reagan. This, this is a linchpin. That's why this is so important to understand of American politics. Last point. There's a Achilles heel of all of this for the Republicans, and I don't want to leave you without making that clear. This embrace of family values has now been split inside the Republican conservative world. It's been split because a subpart of that world wants this to be the celebration not of all family values, but of white people's family values. And by white people's family values, they actually mean white male people's family values. That is, they becoming, they want the party to become the party of reconstructing the time when, whether it's real or fantasy is really not the point here, but to reconstruct an America in which white men have their white wife back with Dick, Jane, and Spot so that they can come home 
from their insecure 80-hour-a-week job to enjoy what's left of the lawn <laughs> in our ecologically mongled culture. But it's a serious image. They're going to bring it back. They have to argue that they're going to bring it back. And therein lies something which, if we're lucky, will be a fatal flaw. Because they can't. They're not bringing it back. Not because they wouldn't like to in some fantastic way, but because they cannot. And it is extremely dangerous to sell yourself to the mass of the American people as the deliverer of a package that never comes. You know how you feel about UPS and Amazon when it never comes. After you've paid. Why can't it come? Because nothing is stopping the capitalists from their appointed rounds. They're moving jobs out of the country. They're bringing cheap labor in. All the noise about immigrants is undone as fast as it's passed. It's all political theater. If you pay attention, immigrants are being brought in because the farms can't run without them, because the hospitals need them for the work that's underpaid, all of the other things that Americans can't do, or if you have Americans doing, which is much more important, they will be so angry and bitter that it's more dangerous for capitalism than to bring the damn immigrants back and live with the tensions that that involves. You can't bring it back. You can't deliver. The jobs aren't there, the incomes aren't there, and the capitalists are not playing in this game, which means the Republicans are working against the clock. They're promising they cannot deliver. Sooner or later, that blows up. And the only real question is whether the left, inside or outside the Democratic Party, assuming that inside they're still there, the question is whether we have the analytic and the organization to expose this story and to offer a whole new way of organizing society that can actually make emotional, personal, intimate, sexual relations among people a priority that the society respects and supports rather than something thrown away when the difficulties of profitability lead corporations to do all that and let the chips fall where they may. Capitalism destroyed the family. And if that's a problem for you, which it is, then your anger and your hostility ought to go to where the problem starts. And it's not homosexuals. Thank you. Now, we'll continue with the second half of Chris Hedges' speech. It turns out, 45 years later, that those who truly hate us for our freedoms are not the array of dehumanized enemies cooked up by the war machine, the Vietnamese, Cambodians, Afghans, Iraqis, Iranians, even the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, or ISIS. They are the financiers, bankers, politicians, public intellectuals, and pundits, lawyers, journalists, and business people, 
cultivated in the elite universities and business schools who sold us the utopian dream of neoliberalism. We are entering the twilight phase of capitalism. Capitalists unable to generate profits by expanding markets has, as Karl Marx predicted, begun to cannibalize the state like ravenous parasites. Wealth is no longer created by producing or manufacturing. It is created by manipulating the prices of stocks and commodities and imposing a crippling debt peonage on the public. This casino capitalism is designed to prey on the desperate young men and women burdened by student loans, underpaid workers, burdened by credit card debt and mortgages, towns and cities forced to borrow to maintain municipal services. This seminal moment in human history marks the end of a long, tragic tale of plunder and murder by the white race. It is inevitable that for the final act, we vomited up Trump. Europeans and Americans have spent five centuries conquering, plundering, exploiting, and polluting the earth in the name of civilization and human progress. They use their technological superiority to create the most efficient killing machines on the planet, directed against anyone or anything, especially indigenous cultures, which stood in their way. They stole and hoarded the planet's wealth and resources. They believe this orgy of blood and gold will never end. They do not understand that the dark ethic of ceaseless capitalism and imperialist expansion is over and that it is dooming the exploiters as well as the exploited. But even as we stand on the cusp of extinction, we lack the ability to free ourselves from the myth of human progress. Walter Benjamin wrote in 1940 amid the rise of European fascism and looming world war this. A Klee painting named Angelus Novus shows an angel looking as though he is about to move away from something he is fixedly contemplating. His eyes are staring his mouth is open, his wings are spread. This is how one pictures the angel of history. His face is turned towards the past. Where we perceive a chain of events, he sees one single catastrophe, which keeps piling wreckage upon wreckage and hurls it in front of his feet. The angel would like to stay, awaken the dead, and make whole what has been smashed. But a storm is blowing from paradise. It has got caught in his wings with such violence that the angel can no longer close them. The storm irresistibly propels him into the future to which his back is turned, while the pile of debris before him grows skyward. This storm is what we call progress. The more the warning signs are palpable, rising temperatures, global financial meltdowns, mass migrations, 
endless wars, poisoned ecosystems, rampant corruption among the ruling elites. The more we turn to those who insist that what worked in the past will work in the future, that progress is inevitable. Factual evidence, since it is an impediment to what we desire, is banished. The taxes of corporations and the rich, who have turned most of our cities into wastelands, are cut. Regulations and laws are rescinded to bring back the supposed golden era of the 1950s for white American workers. Public lands are opened up to the oil and gas industry, even as rising carbon emissions doom our species. Declining crop yields stemming from heat waves and droughts are ignored. War becomes the principal business of the kleptocratic state. Magical thinking is not limited to the beliefs and practices of pre-modern cultures. It defines the ideology of capitalism. Quotas and projected sales can always be met. Profits can always be raised. Growth is inevitable. The impossible is always possible. Human societies, if they bow before the dictates of the marketplace, will be ushered into a capitalist paradise. It is only a question of having the right attitude and the right technique. When capitalism thrives, we are assured we thrive. The merging of the self with the capitalist collective has robbed us of our agency, creativity, capacity for self-reflection, and moral autonomy. We define our worth not by our independence or our character, but by the material standards set by capitalism, wealth, brands, status, career advancement. We have been molded into a compliant and repressed collective. This conformity is characteristic of totalitarian and authoritarian states. It is expressed in the disnification of America, the land of eternally happy thoughts and positive attitudes. And when magical thinking does not work, we are told and often accept that we are the problem. We must have more faith. We must envision what we want. We must try harder. The system is never to blame. We failed it. It does not fail us. And all our systems of information from self-help gurus to Hollywood to charlatans such as Trump sell us this snake oil. What does resistance look like now? It will not come by investing hope in the Democratic Party, which did not lose the elections because of Comey or the Russians, but because it betrayed working men and women on behalf of corporate power and used its machinery to deny the one candidate, Bernie Sanders, who could have defeated Trump from getting the nomination. The proposed cuts, $9.2 billion from the Department of Education, $616 billion from Medicaid and the Children's Health Insurance Program over 10 years. $200 billion from the Food Stamp Program, a lifeline for 44 million people.
$72 billion for people with disabilities, $39 billion for subsidized student loans, and $859 million for public service loan forgiveness, along with a half a trillion dollar increase to the Pentagon's budget over the next decade. Accelerates the austerity programs and militarism that has been embraced by the Democratic Party. As Diane Ravitich pointed out, for example, the Democrats bear as much responsibility for Betsy DeVos as the Republicans. DeVos's proposed voucher system allowing parents to use public funding for private and religious schools is modeled on a school choice program introduced by then-Governor Bill Clinton. This voucher system was promoted by Obama and Arne Duncan. Obama closed countless public schools. He doubled the number of students attending charter schools. And it was Bill Clinton and the Democratic Party who gave us NAFTA, the destruction of welfare, the deregulation of the FCC, the explosion of our prison population, and the abolishment of Glass-Steagall that precipitated the global financial meltdown. Resistance will entail a personal commitment to refuse to cooperate in large and small ways with the machinery of corporate power, especially the fossil fuel industry. After all, the only safe figure for carbon emissions is zero. This will require us, as Ralph Nader has long said, to show up. We have to, as Max Weber advised, make politics a vocation. And resistance will begin locally as we transform our neighborhoods and our communities. In the conflicts I covered as a reporter in Latin America, Africa, the Middle East, and the Balkans, I encountered singular individuals of varying creeds, religions, races, and nationalities who majestically rose up to defy the oppressor on behalf of the oppressed. Some of them are dead. Some of them are forgotten. Most of them are unknown. These individuals, despite their vast cultural differences, had common traits. A profound commitment to the truth incorruptibility, courage, a distrust of power, a hatred of violence, and a deep empathy that was extended to people who were different from them, even to people defined by the dominant culture as the enemy. They are the most remarkable men and women I met in my 20 years as a foreign correspondent. And to this day, I set my life by the standards they said. You have heard of some, such as Václav Havel, whom I and other foreign reporters met most evenings during the Velvet Revolution in Prague in 1989 at the Magic Lantern Theater. Others, no less great, you may not know, such as the De Jesuit priest Ignacio Ayacaria, who was assassinated in El Salvador in 1989. And then, there are those 
ordinary people, although, as the writer V.S. Pritchett said, no people are ordinary, who risk their lives in wartime to shelter and protect those of an opposing religion or ethnicity who were being persecuted and hunted. And to some of these ordinary people, I owe my life. To resist radical evil is to endure a life that by the standards of the wider society is a failure. It is to defy injustice at the cost of your career, your reputation, your financial solvency, and at times your life. It is to be a lifelong heretic. And perhaps this is the most important point. It is to accept that the dominant culture and perhaps, and maybe even especially the liberal elites, will push you to the margins and attempt to discredit not only what you do, but your character. When I returned to the newsroom at the New York Times in 2003, after denouncing the invasion of Iraq and being publicly reprimanded for my stance against the war, Reporters and editors I had known and worked with for 15 years lowered their heads or turned away when I was nearby. Ruling institutions, the state, the press, the church, the courts, academia, mouth the language of morality, but they serve the structures of power, no matter how venal, which provide them with money, status, and authority. In times of national distress, one has only to look at Nazi Germany. All these institutions, including the academy, are complicit through their silence or their active collaboration with radical evil. And our institutions are no different. The lonely individuals who defy tyrannical power within these institutions as we saw with the thousands of academics who were fired from their jobs and blacklisted during the McCarthy era, are usually purged and turned into pariahs. All institutions, including the church, Paul Tillich once wrote, are inherently demonic. And a life dedicated to resistance has to accept that a relationship with any institution is usually temporary because sooner or later that institution is going to demand acts of silence or obedience your conscience will not allow you to make. <laughs> to be a rebel is to reject the capitalist mantra that I come first. The theologian James Cone in his book The Cross and the Lynching Tree writes that for oppressed blacks the cross was a paradoxical religious symbol because it inverts the world's value system with the news that hope comes by way of defeat, that suffering and death do not have the last word, that the last shall be first and the first last. Cone continues that God could make a way out of no way in Jesus' cross was truly absurd to the intellect, yet profoundly real in the souls of black folk. 
enslaved blacks who first heard the gospel message seized on the power of the cross. Christ crucified manifested God's loving and liberating presence in the contradictions of black life. That transcendent presence in the lives of black Christians that empowered them to believe that ultimately in God's eschatological future they would not be defeated by the troubles of this world no matter how great and painful their suffering. Believing this paradox, this absurd claim of faith was only possible in humility and repentance. There was no place for the proud and the mighty, for people who think that God called them to rule over others. The cross was God's critique of power, white power, with powerless love, snatching victory out of defeat. Reinhold Niebuhr labeled this capacity to defy the forces of repression a sublime madness in the soul. Niebuhr wrote that nothing but madness will do battle with malignant power and spiritual wickedness in high places. This sublime madness, as Niebuhr understood, is dangerous, but it is vital. Without it, truth is obscured. And Niebuhr also knew that traditional liberalism was a useless force in moments of extremity. Liberalism, Niebuhr said, lacks the spirit of enthusiasm, not to say fanaticism, which is so necessary to move the world out of its beaten tracks. It is too intellectual and too little emotional to be an efficient force in history. The prophets in the Hebrew Bible had this sublime madness. The words of the prophets, as Abraham Heschel wrote, were a scream in the night. While the world is at ease and asleep, the prophet feels the blast from heaven. The prophet, because he or she saw and faced an unpleasant reality, was, as Heschel wrote, compelled to proclaim the very opposite of what his or her heart expected. This sublime madness is the essential quality for a life of resistance. It is the acceptance that although empirically all that we struggle to achieve during our lifetime may be worse, our struggle validates itself. Daniel Berrigan once told me that faith is the belief that the good draws to it the good. The Buddhists call this karma. But he said for us, we did not know where it goes. We trust that it goes somewhere. We do not know where. But we are called to do the good. Or at least the good insofar as we can determine it. And then let it go. As Hannah Arendt wrote in The Origins of Totalitarianism, the only morally reliable people are not those who say this is wrong or this should not be done, but those who say I can't. They know that as Immanuel Kant wrote, if justice perishes, 
human life on earth has lost its meaning. And this means that like Socrates, we must come to a place where it is better to suffer wrong than to do wrong. We must at once see and act. And given what it means to see, this will require the surmounting of despair. Not by reason, but by faith. I saw in the conflicts I covered the power of this faith which lies outside of any religious or philosophical creed. This faith is what Havel called in his essay, The Power of the Powerless, Living in Truth. Living in truth exposes the corruption, lies, and deceit of the state. It is a refusal to be part of the charade, and it has a cost. You do not become a dissident just because you decide one day to take up this most unusual career, Havel wrote. You are thrown into it by your personal sense of responsibility combined with a complex set of external circumstances. You are cast out of the existing structures and placed in a position of conflict with them. It begins as an attempt to do your work well and ends with being branded an enemy of society. The dissident does not operate in the realm of genuine power at all. He or she is not seeking power. He or she has no desire for office and does not gather votes. He or she does not attempt to charm the public. He or she offers nothing and promises nothing. He or she can offer, if anything, only their own skin. And they offer it solely because they have no other way of affirming the truth they stand for. Their actions simply articulate their dignity as a citizen, regardless of the cost. The long, long road of sacrifice and defiance that led to the collapse of the communist regime stretched back decades. Those who made change possible were those who had discarded all notions of the practical. They did not try to reform the Communist Party. They did not attempt to work within the system. They did not even know what, if anything, their tiny protests, ignored by the state-controlled media, would accomplish. But through it all, they held fast to moral imperatives. They did so because these values were right and just. They expected no reward for their virtue. Indeed, they got none. They were marginalized and persecuted. And yet, these rebels, poets, playwrights, actors, singers, and writers ultimately triumphed over state and military power. They drew the good to the good. They triumphed because however cowed and broken the people around them appeared, their message did not go unheard. It did not go unseen. The steady drumbeat of rebellion exposes the dead hand of authority and the rot of the state. I stood with hundreds of thousands of Czechs in 1989 on a cold winter night 
in Prague's Wenceslas Square. As the singer Marta Kubishova approached the balcony of the Melantric building, Kubishova had been banished from the airwaves in 1968 after the Soviet invasion for her anthem of defiance, a prayer for Marta. Her entire catalog, including more than 200 singles, had been confiscated and destroyed. She had disappeared from public view. Her voice that night suddenly flooded the square. Pressing around me were throngs of students, most of whom had not been born when she vanished from public view. They began to sing the words of the anthem. There were tears running down their faces. It was then that I understood the power of resistance. It was then that I knew that no act of rebellion, however futile it appears in the moment, is wasted. And it was then that I knew that the communist regime was finished. The walls of Prague were covered that winter with posters of Jan Pollock. Pollock, a university student, set himself on fire in Wenceslas Square on January 16, 1969, in the middle of the day, to protest the crushing of the country's democracy movement. He died of his burns three days later. The state swiftly attempted to erase his act from national memory. There was no mention of it on the state media. A funeral march by university students was broken up by the police. Pollock's gravesite, which became a shrine, saw the communist authorities exhume his body, cremate his remains, and ship them to his mother with a provision that his ashes could not be placed in a cemetery. But it did not work. His sacrifice spurred the students in the winter of 1989 to act. Prague's Red Army Square, shortly after I left for Bucharest to cover the uprising in Romania, was renamed Pollock Square, and 10,000 people were at the dedication. We may feel powerless, but we are not. We have a power that terrifies the corporate state. Any act of rebellion, no matter how few people show up or how heavily it is censored, chips away at corporate power. Any act of rebellion keeps alive the embers for larger movements to follow. It passes on another narrative. And it will, as the state consumes itself, attract wider and wider numbers. Perhaps this will not happen in our lifetimes, but if we persist, we keep this possibility alive, and if we do not, it will die. Dr. Rio and Albert Camus' novel, The Plague, is not driven to act by ideology. He is driven by empathy, the duty to minister to the suffering of others, no matter the cost. 
to act on this empathy. The empathy for human beings locked in cages. The empathy for undocumented mothers and fathers being torn from their children on the streets of our cities. The empathy for Muslims who are demonized and banned from our shores, fleeing the wars and terror we created. The empathy for poor people of color gunned down by police in our streets. The empathy for girls and women trafficked into prostitution. The empathy for our great and glorious earth, which gives us life and which is being destroyed is not only viewed by despots as political, but seditious. A life of faith, and we are all called to faith, is a life of confrontation. As Flannery O'Connor writes of St. Cyril of Jerusalem and instructing catechumens, the dragon sits by the side of the road, watching those who pass. Beware, lest he devour you. We go to the father of souls, but it is necessary to pass by the dragon. No matter what form the dragon may take, it is of this mysterious passage past him or into his jaws that stories of any depth will always be concerned to tell. And this being the case, it requires considerable courage at any time in any country not to turn away from the storyteller. Accept sorrow, for who cannot be profoundly sorrowful at the state of our nation, the world, what we are doing to our planet? But no, that in resistance there is a balm that leads to wisdom and if not joy, a strange transcendent happiness. Know that as long as we resist, we keep hope alive. My faith has been tempered in hell, wrote Vasily Grossman in Life and Faith, Fate. My faith has emerged from the flames of the crematoria from the concrete of the gas chamber. I have seen that it is not man who is impotent in the struggle against evil, but the power of evil that is impotent in the struggle against man. The powerlessness of kindness, of senseless kindness, is the secret of its immortality. It can never be conquered. The more stupid, the more senseless, the more helpless it may seem, the vaster it is. Evil is impotent before it. The prophets, religious leaders, reformers, social and political leaders are impotent before it. This dumb, blind love is man's meaning. Human history is not the battle of good struggling to overcome evil. It is the battle fought by a great evil struggling to crush a small kernel of human kindness. But if what is human in human beings has not been destroyed even now, then evil 
will never conquer. The days ahead will be dark and frightening. But we must fight for the sacred. We must fight for life. We must fight the forces of death. We fight not only for ourselves, but for those who will come after us, our children. Revolt is a political necessity. It is a moral imperative. We must not be complicit. We must live in truth. The moment we defy power in any form, we are victorious. The moment we stand with the oppressed and accept being treated like the oppressed, we are victorious. The moment we hold up a flickering light in the darkness for others to see, we are victorious. The moment we thwart the building of a pipeline or a fracking site, we are victorious. The moment we keep a mother faced with deportation with her children, we are victorious. The moment we mass in the streets to defy police violence, we are victorious. We must turn the tide of fear. We must, by taking the streets, make the ruling elites frightened of us. To sit idle, to refuse to defy these forces, to by our silence be complicit, will atrophy and wither our souls. It will leave us husks of human beings. This is not only a fight for life. It is a fight that gives life. It is the supreme expression of faith. It is the belief that no matter how great is the power of evil, the power of love is greater. I do not, in the end, fight fascists because I will win. I fight fascists because they are fascists. Thank you. This and all previous episodes of the show are available for download from unwelcomeguests.net slash archive. Theme tune, The Unwelcome Guest, is by Billy Bragg and Wilco, with lyrics by Woody Guthrie. I've got so much to say on this topic, but don't get me started. I'm just finishing. It's still working within the two-hour per show limit. Perhaps I'll make another one next week. And if you'd like to suggest material for the show, you can email me, robin-upton at robinupton.com. Right.